Welcome to Security by the Book, where we discuss recent books on national security. We usually hold these talks from Hoover, the Hoover Institution's office in Washington, D.C., but today, for the first time, we are having a discussion from Palo Alto at the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto. So I'm here with Amy Ziegert and Herb Lynn, who are the people in charge of cyber policy analysis at Stanford, among many other things. And they are also the authors and editors of a new book called Bites, Bombs, and Spies, The Strategic Dimensions of Offensive Cyber Operations. And the book is a collection of essays from an extraordinary range of writers uh, on the topic of offensive cyber operations. And before I get into asking them questions about the book, I just want to say that I have not read a book in a long time, a collection of essays in a long time, that was this good. I really learned a ton about offensive cyber operations. It's very, very high level of participants and essays, so congratulations to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. So why don't we start off with you telling uh, me what the book's about, how it came to pass, and why offensive cyber operations is an important topic. Well, for, from my standpoint, this is Herb, from, from my standpoint, it, it actually goes back to a project that you and I worked on, in two, which, the National Research Council project in 2009 on uh, offensive uh, cyber operations as, uh, as instruments of, of national policy. Now, at that time, of course, the Cyber Command was just starting to, to get born uh, and, and, and so on. But since then, a lot has happened. Uh, in, in the space, a lot more concerns about it, a lot more issues have, uh, ha have, have come out. Uh, this uh, book is a, uh, the, these essays originated uh, because at the time, uh, about 2015 or so, we started to think about uh, the kinds of issues that uh, would be involved in thinking about offensive operations in cyberspace as a serious instrument of national policy. Uh, and these were some of the uh, issues that uh, uh, that came out of it. Amy? So when, as Herb and I started talking more and more about what kind of a workshop we wanted to do together, this was really his idea. It was a strategy of incremental commitment, this book. So we started with a workshop in 2016. We partnered with Cyber Command. And it was really motivated by two observations. One is that, as, as Herb mentioned, offensive cyber operations were clearly becoming more important in the policy space. But secondly, and equally important, they were understudied. So in the academy and in think tanks and in the public policy domains, there was a lot more attention being paid to cyber defense and cyber offense. And Herb made a very compelling case that um, it had been so overclassified in the offensive cyber operations space, and we write that Mike Hayden said even in the mid-2000s, the term offensive cyber operations was classified, right. that that was really impeding the development of basic understandings about things like strategy, doctrine, operational considerations. So I want to come back to that point, but first, it's probably important for our listeners for one of you to tell us what offensive cyber operations are and how and whether one can distinguish that from defensive operations. Offensive cyber operations uh, as an instrument of state policy, well, first of all, it's, it's state policy. That is, this is uh, something done offensively in cyberspace uh, that is sanctioned uh, by a government, sanctioned in the sense of, of expressly uh, permitted, authorized, undertaken by a, by a government entity, um, possibly the United States, possibly some other, uh, so, so, some other government. Uh, now, the, the nature of the offensive operation uh, can vary. Uh, it can be for espionage purposes. It can be for attack purposes. Uh, so that's the first thing I want to know. So we're talking about both cyber exploitation and cyber attack? I think that's yes. correct. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Um, and, and that they both have strategic uh, uh, the, the dimensions to them. And so say more about why this has been understudied. Is it only because of the, high, the highly classified nature of offensive operations? Is that the main reason? From my standpoint, as an observer in, in, in all of this, I'll, well, I'll tell you a story, uh, which is back in, uh, in 2000, uh, when I was in Washington, D.C. at the National Research Council, um, I went to, to DOD and, and uh, said, uh, would, you like to, you know, would you like an academy study on this? Because we had a, uh, um, uh, the, the, the DOD itself had recently put out a, uh, a legal analysis of this stuff in 1999. You've cited this for a number of occasions. 
uh, yourself. And I thought that, the, uh, that a uh, study on this would be really interesting. And I was very politely shown the door. Okay? They said, go away. We have this all under control, and, and, and we don't want any public attention to this at all. Uh, that was in 2000. And, and, and so uh, that you could understand why that might pique up my interest in, in, in this. And uh, so I mean, I think it, it, the, the fact that it's been classified uh, is one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that people think that you need to know a lot about the technology to, uh, and there's some magic secret sauce here that, uh, that gives you insight into the technology. Whereas, in fact, I mean, you need to know some things, obviously, but you don't need, to, you don't need a degree in computer science to understand offensive operations in cyberspace. I just add one thing, which is that I think it, the, why is it so highly classified? And I think one of the reasons is that offensive cyber operations are much more, as we see, and as you know very well, Jack, much closer to covert operations, much more like intelligence than it is kinetic military action. And so there's a natural proclivity, especially when you think about the organizations that have been so uh, intimately involved with the development of offensive cyber operations, they're intel organizations. And right. so there's a natural reason why it's been particularly classified. Well, let me follow up on that. So one question I had was, one thing that's changed since you and I started first working on this together, Herb, uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago, is a mass of leaks, most notably the Snowden revelations, but also tons of other leaks that have revealed U.S. government capabilities and that in turn have caused the intelligence agencies, NSA especially, but also CIA and others, to get used to talking about these topics in public and to have more transparency. So I'm wondering, is this in part about that, that they've just gotten used to it and that the capabilities aren't as secret as they used to be, so they see a benefit now to being able to talk about it? Is that possible? Well, I, I, certainly when we, when we conceived the study, um, we weren't particularly paying much attention to the, the, the Snowden leaks per se. Um, obviously, there was information that came, that, 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 that came out of it. But you know, the US government was, of course, very upset about the Snowden leaks. And, and um, you know, if you have a clearance, you're still not allowed to read the, the Snowden documents. Right. Um, so I don't think, it, but the, the, you are correct in, in, at, at a high level. I think you're really correct about it. That they, the, the fact that the government has been, uh, has had to confront the fact that there is now manifest evidence that they have been hacking in cyberspace on the, you know, for official U.S. government pur purposes. I mean, that is a, that's something that the U.S. government has been very reluctant to to acknowledge. Yeah, and I, I was really struck. Uh, that at the end of the Obama administration, President Obama was actually publicly, and other officials too, bragging about how good we are at it, what, about our extraordinary capabilities in offense and cyber. Um, although there's some disagreement about how good we are, right. we certainly have extraordinary capabilities. And that's not a conversation you would have heard from a president five, six, that's seven correct. years before then. But I think we're also on the receiving end of offensive cyber operations in a way we haven't been before. Right. So yes, there's the, you know, maybe leaks in the Snowden revelations have opened the doors a little bit, but it's clearly, also driven by the fact that we're being attacked by states to a greater extent, you know, whether right. it's Russia, Iran, North Korea. Right. So I think it's both. So I want to come back to that in, in a little bit, that, that very point. Um, one of the things, it seems to me that there are some costs to having more public discussions of these operations. One, I think, it's, is implicit in the essay, if I'm remembering rightly, by Jason Healy, which is that um, when you talk about this stuff more, there's a chance, and when you use this stuff more, and when it's publicly known that you use this stuff more, that's likely doing to spark a mutual escalation or an arms race and the like. Is that just an unhappy, is that accurate, do you think? And is that just a, an unhappy side effect of this? It seems, of course, one never knows because one doesn't know what's going on in secret, but it seems like there has been a very sh sharply increasing arms race in the last, pick a number, five, 10 years and that this has coincided with increasing evidence of U.S. Uh, offensive operations through leaks, not through government disclosure. So is that a danger about talking about this? Is that a downside, a necessary downside? Uh, again, from my, from my perspective, the, the fact that you, uh, well, if, you, if there's evidence that you're doing it and you don't talk about that, I think you just look silly. 
Okay, so then I think that the, the, the real question that, that you have to be asking is, let's say the evidence weren't there, should we still be talking about it? Uh, and that's an interesting question. I mean, there is the argument that says, the one argument that says that you're talking about it as a legitimate instrument of policy legitimizes it for other people. Then the other argument is that they're going to do it anyway, uh, regardless of what, of, of, of what you do. Um, Jay Healy, I think, made it, made, you know, makes, it in, makes an interesting observation uh, in, in, in his paper, which is, I mean, he asked the question, if you, if you come across as being more fearsome in cyberspace, um, are people going to back down or try to, uh, or, or try to improve their capabilities to match yours? Okay. And you know, his, his answer is, they're going to try to match yours, and that creates a dangerous uh, spiral upwards. That's sort of the arms race stuff that, 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 mm -hmm. that you're talking about. I would, you know, Amy, and Amy, you're, you know, you're more of a scholar on, on, on this question historically than I am. My recollection is that there is essentially, there are very, very few examples in which the development of fearsome capabilities made in any domain in, in military conflict um, made the other guy back down um, and, and say, no, that, you know, no, 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 he's too powerful, we're, we're, we're just going to sort of be quiet and, and, and go away. There's always a counter-reaction, right? It always reminds me, there's a line in the movie Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum says, you know, nature finds a way, <laughs> right? Adversaries find a way to match or exceed or take advantage of asymmetric vulnerabilities on your side. So they don't back down. They don't back but down. Is, how does this topic we're talking about now relate to the security dilemma? Is that... It is, I mean, it is exactly the security dilemma in cyberspace, but I think it's important for us to, just to take a step back, to talk about it. What do we mean when we say talk about it? Because in some ways, I feel like before this project, we were in the worst of all worlds, where we gave vague reference to our awesome capabilities, and we have documents like the Nuclear Posture Review and the National Security Strategy that explicitly imply, if not state, that we reserve the right to respond to a cyber attack with any other uh, nuclear or conventional response and vice versa. So we're in some ways the worst of all worlds where we actually haven't thought through what are escalation dynamics? How is this domain different than other domains? Do we actually know what we think we know? At the same time, we're broadcasting the fact that we have these fearsome capabilities, which Jay Healy argues uh, is not necessarily the wisest course of, act a course of action. So let's talk about how this domain is different from other domains. One is just, when in reading the essays, one is overwhelmed with the differences between the cyber domain and, for lack of a better phrase, kinetic domains, um, and especially with the disanalogies between cyber and nuclear, I think they, they really come out. Um, it might There might be too many to summarize, but can we just talk about some? What do you think are some of the salient fundamental differences? I mean, many of the essays talk about this. Uh, well, for me, one of them is, is the intangible nature of uh, cyber as a, because it manipulates information. Uh, you know, you have to work hard to, uh, uh, to suppress information, whereas you have to work hard to move atoms, physical, you know, physical things. Uh, and so uh, the fact that information is intangible means that, for example, it can cross national borders pretty easily, um, and it can go across. Uh, you know, it, it, it gets it gets transmitted at the speed of light. Um, there are those kinds of things, and then of course the the all of the affordances of modern information technology, um, high con high degrees of connectivity, low latency, all all those sorts of things. Um, it, it, it it changes the environment uh, entirely. Perhaps most importantly, it's a man-made environment. People, people design the environment. Uh, it's not the the, the, you know, the laws of physics constrain uh, the performance of weapons uh, in the kinetic world, uh, where it's the it's the imagination that, const that constrains the design of information weapons, if you will. I, I just add the the two unique characteristics of cyberspace that really I keep coming back to are these the target dependence, which Herb and I have talked a lot about. So he gives a great example where if you have a missile that hits a ship, it doesn't really matter whether the ship is made of metal or wood or whatever, the missile is gonna hit the ship and destroy it. Doesn't If you change the ship a little bit, the missile's still gonna hit. But of course in cyberspace, if you change the target a little bit, the configuration of the target, the weapon may be rendered completely useless. That is fundamentally different in cyberspace than it is in the physical mm -hmm. world. The second, uh, unique characteristic that I keep coming back to is the accumulation problem. 
you have lots of bombs makes you, if you have a lot of bombs in the physical world, it makes you more powerful. If you have a lot of copies of the same version of malware, it doesn't give you any added benefit. So they don't stockpile in the same way. And even if you have different exploits or vulnerabilities that you want to take advantage of, they may be time delimited in a way that they aren't in the physical world. So there's the use it or lose it. So, so those are pretty big differences. Um, in the introductory essay, your excellent introductory essay to the collection, you talk about the, the classics of nuclear theory, uh, Bernard Brody, Herman Kahn, Tom Schelling, and their great uh, advances in the 50s and 60s, and figuring out really important, deep questions of nuclear strategy, nuclear offense, and defense. But they seemed, and you, and you imply, I think, that you know we need a similar kind of effort in the cyber realm, but it just seems impossibly more difficult for the reasons you just suggested. Their problems, the problems they were dealing with, I certainly don't want to minimize because their insights were extraordinary, but they just seemed so much easier because the nature of the weapons were so limited, the nature of the adversaries was pretty much limited, and and the basic characteristics of the weapons were known. And, and so it seemed, it seemed it's just much easier to theorize and to strategize in that context in here. I would say just hugely different. Is that right or wrong? I, I, I'd agree with that, certainly, that, that we have a... Um, a situation where we don't know where the next Herman Kahn is going to come come from, uh, or, or or Bernard Brody, uh, we don't know what ideas they they were going to that they're they're going to have. Um, I wish I could claim to be such a person. I'm not, um, but you know I think that you're right. It is much it is much harder, and we we don't have a good theory of how this operates at this point. I think it is much harder, but for some, some different reasons, not just the nature mm -hmm. of the problem is so much more complex. I think that you had physicists in that period that really wanted to cross the line into policy, and a lot of computer scientists don't. Um, so I think there is that there's a sociology of knowledge problem here too. That's interesting. It's also, as Herb has convinced me, inherently multidisciplinary cybersecurity in a way that hard national security challenges of the nuclear age weren't. Um, so it requires more boundary crossing in academic disciplines, psychology in particular. Now when we think about information warfare, economics, political science, law, history, uh, and engineering to really grapple with these challenges. And in the academy, we don't reward people for crossing boundaries as much as we should. So I think there's that problem too. Yeah, I've seen this most in actually in political science where you know, the younger generation of political scientists are hugely dependent upon data for because they're trained to operate on data to do analysis that's what they're rewarded for and in this context data is just hard to come by for reasons we've been discussing and therefore I think there's a pretty large disincentive for political scientists just as one example to, to dive into this is that fair yes. yeah I, I think you know many of the giants of, of, of classical political science Bob Jervis um, Henry Kissinger Joe Nye and, and and so on they all did quote qualitative stuff. If they came up for tenure now, no way. I mean, the, be tough. Be, the, the, that discipline has changed a lot. Right. And yet I still don't understand, I just want to say, spend one more uh, second on this. I still don't understand why the technical people could cross over into policy um, back in the 50s and 60s. What is, what is the hurdle to that happening now? I mean, we've been working on this problem quarter of a century almost, I mean 20 years at least, and it doesn't seem like there's significant progress at the theoretical level. The, I, I as you know, I did my, my, my doctorate in, in, in physics. Um, I actually worked with physicists on the Manhattan Project, and some of them watched the explosion at Alamogordo. Okay? I mean, they looked at this, and, and it was a, you know, a sun coming up uh, where they thought, you know, where was total darkness before. Uh, and they saw, my thesis advisor was on the ground on, on, on Nagasaki a few weeks afterwards. Um, and I think they, they had a sense for what, for what had happened. Uh, I think there isn't a comparable sense among computer scientists, at least in part because we haven't had this meltdown. The 2016 election doesn't count as the functional equivalent of a meltdown? Well, that you, well, this, is, this is an interesting question. Um, you know, 
if you think about it, the Russians used Facebook and Google and Twitter exactly as they were intended to be used and designed to be used. Uh, but not Google with the phishing attack. Not, not, I don't mean, right, I don't mean the, yeah. that, that part of it. I, I meant the, it's social the, Google, media. Yeah, the social media part yeah. and, and YouTube right. and, and, and so on, just to, to, to disseminate poisonous propaganda and so on. That's what it's supposed to be for. They're not supposed to distinguish uh, this sort of stuff. And, you know, you're supposed to be able to create an interest group in anything you want. Well, well and in fact, and, and the lines are getting murkier, right? right. We, we've read this week that now there's a second instance of, in the Senate campaign with Roy Moore and Doug right. Jones, of a Russian playbook essentially being taken over by Democratic political operatives creating fake online uh, groups on Facebook and Twitter. So it's, it's both an international security challenge and a domestic policy challenge. Right. And, that and, and an interesting question in, the, in, in that in that particular, in, in, in the uh, Alabama, uh, in, in Project Birmingham and, and so on, is exactly what laws were broken. Right. It's an interesting, I, I, I don't know, but, you know, if they may mimic Russian information warfare tactics, but did they break the law? I don't know that. I, you know, somebody should inform me about that. But You, you know, know, I mean, we've been talking about the sort of the great thinkers of the nuclear age. So, you know, Tom Schelling would say, like, where's the focal point in cyber? It's very clear when there's a nuclear detonation. That is a focal point. Yes, right. The world Great is point. different. Right. But what's, a, what's an attack of national significance? This is something that we still don't have our arms and around. And indeed, I referred to the, the 2016 election as if that were a thing. But in fact, it was a lot of different things. And the significance of those things, the significance of each of those things is still unclear. And it's, frankly, it's still contested about how consequential what the Russians did right. was. Right, right. So... So let me shift to, um, I want to, to give our listeners a sense of a couple of things. One, and Herb, I think you're the expert in this, but Amy, you might be too. Just can you give us a thumbnail sketch? I'm not sure you can do this, but how doctrine, U.S. doctrine, has developed on offensive cyber. And I, I think you had an essay that talked about cyber command. You had co-authored an essay, and Inglis has a good essay on this. It seems that our official doctrine is getting more, more and more aggressive and openly offensive. Is that a fair summary? I think that's a, I, I think that's a fair summary. Um, in the Obama administration, uh, they they clearly abided by a policy of uh, restraint. I think that was even uh, explicit, um, although I, I I I can't bring up the quote uh, immediately. Uh, but they, there was a policy of restraint uh, in, in, in cyberspace that we had these, what that meant was that we had these powerful offensive capabilities, but we would act with restraint there, with, con with con due consideration for escalation and for balancing uh, a variety of equities, including military and intelligence on one hand, but also diplomatic and economic uh, you know, issues on, on, on the other. And, 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 uh, trying to, you know, put all of those things together. That's why we had a, 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 a National Security Council process that was supposed to uh, ride herd on the uh, on the use of, of offensive operations in cyberspace that would bring in this process brought in stakeholders from all the various departments and, and, and so on. Um, the new cyber command strategy and uh, vision uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the new cyber strategy and so on basically say that hasn't worked, which is manifestly true. Okay, so if a policy of restraint hasn't worked, um, then maybe a policy of getting in your face will work. Now I don't know what I don't know what the outcome of that's going to be, but you know I can certainly understand the motivation. What we were doing before didn't work. It didn't, Lots of bad things were continuing to, to, to happen, um, so I think that, that this is a new this is a new approach. We can get into a discussion as to whether or not we think it'll work. Uh, well, let me ask you about that. So, I think your essay took us explained the, the evolution of cyber command and took us up through the 2018 command vision for cyber command. That's correct. And since then, I think there's been this 2018 DOD cyber strategy, right. and in pertinent part, it says that I'm paraphrasing here: the the DOD will defend forward to disrupt or halt malicious cyber activities at its source, including activity that falls below the level of armed conflict. Right. That seems like a new position for the United States. As I as I interpret that, I want you to tell me 
this is right. As I interpret that, and we've seen other discussions of this, the United States is now announcing we're going for the source of these attacks and we're going to try to take them out. Is that part of what they're talking about? I, I, I think when you say defend forward, I mean, it, it's the idea, defending forward is the idea of defending as far away as possible from U.S., from the targets in the U.S. that might be that might come under attack. So where's that going to be? That's going to be either, it's not going to be in American networks. It's going to be in transit or in foreign networks or at the foreign source. Okay, it's going to be somewhere farther away from the United States uh, or from, from from the U.S. assets, and that's what defending forward means. Is so that, is that a change? Is well, that a formal doctrinal change? It's a formal doctrinal change. They were silent on it before. Now. I think you would have to be naive to think it wasn't going on, in fact, before you know, before that. But yes, I think that's right. I think it's much more active. I mean, the operative word is defend forward. It's not deploy forward. Right. Right? Right. We think about the sort of right. physical domain equivalent. Is forward deployment is you're still kind of below a threshold of active, creating active friction. So your aggressor has to pay a, a higher cost for activities. Defending forward, at least to me, suggests a deliberate effort to create more friction or to hack the hacker, as the case may be. Right. Now, I'll, I'll point out, in 2010, uh, Mike McConnell, former NSA director, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. I think it was even, I think it was February. I'm not sure if that's, that, that, that's correct. Uh, in which he said that we're going to have to preempt and disrupt adversaries uh, coming in, uh, attacking in cyberspace, uh, that the old models didn't work. So even back then, I mean, in, in 2010, this idea was being floated with at least people who had uh, a lot of experience in this area. So it's, uh, it's not a new idea. We've, we, I've heard officials in the U.S. government publicly talk about living in the adversary networks right. for a long time. My sense is, though, that there were either organizational or legal or political constraints on really doing that in a robust way. And it, my reading of the tea leaves here is that the U.S. government has worked its way through some of those constraints and is now being more active. And do you think, Jack, that the living in the networks was for intelligence gathering purposes or for disruption and attack purposes? My sense is what they meant was we need to know what our adversaries are going to do to us before they do it to us so that we can stop them from doing it to us. So I think it's this idea, mm -hmm. which is that that's how I understand this new DOD Doctrine? Well, no, I, no? I think I okay. think it goes I think it goes further than that. Okay. I, I think I think well, you're explain right. It, explain this. I don't understand. Okay. I think I think that what you said is true. That's a question of knowing what's going on. But you can, in principle, know what's going on without taking any action. No, I mean no, no. I meant so. I meant also take action. Okay, right. Okay. But the action, okay. the action, as I understand this policy, is not an action in retaliation. In, and in that sense, it's not an action of. What I think of as there's a technical phrase for this, but I think of that as normal deterrence. This is this is deterrence. I'm not even sure it's, it probably comes under one of the rubrics of deterrence. But this is denying the adversary the capability in the first place. Is that right? I, th I think th I th that that's that's my reading of it. And in fact, you find some statements in in there that say in the new doctrinal visions and so on that say that you'll the other guy will have to spend more effort uh, on defense rather than offense. Um, and so that's good for us. But I think the, the, one of the really interesting parts of Herb's chapter that he wrote with Max Meets, which talks about all this, is the fact that escalation, the word escalation, doesn't occur, doesn't appear in the new Cyber Command vision once. That was really right. striking That's to right. me. So you so should say more about that. that well, I was going to ask about this. Why don't you say something and I'll have a follow-up. Just, just that the word escalation didn't appear uh, and, and that there wasn't any... It, I mean, the previous administration's posture on this uh, cared a lot about escalation. Right. And In fact, let me just interject. Yeah. Time and time again, we were told by officials, either by name or in unnamed sources, that fear of escalation is what presented us, prevented us from doing more in response to the Russian operation, to the Iranian attack on banks, maybe with regard to South Korea, North Korea, I apologize. But there, the Obama administration seemed almost paralyzed by fear of escalation with regard to retaliatory attacks. Is it, so it sounds like there's been a change in this administration, but is there also something about this particular, this isn't retaliation, but sort of anticipatory right. attack? Is there something about that that changes the dynamics of escalation? Maybe. Uh, maybe. maybe. I mean, it makes it, it makes it, you know, if you're on the other, if you're on the receiving end, uh, you might, 
you, you might start to wonder about it uh, as to whether or not this, is a, this counts as a, a provocation. Um, or especially in times of peace, it's, in, in times of peace it may be okay, but in times of tension, how is this going to look? That's a, that's a very interesting question. You know, you, you remember during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we shut down, we tried to shut down U-2 flights over the, o, o, over the Soviet Union, and we weren't entirely successful at that. I mean, this was not a good thing to happen. Um, so, you know, the, 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 how the adversary perceives this in times of crisis could be very, very different. I think, I mean, I don't know if you disagree, Herb and Jack, with this, but my sense is that what one of the key things that we've learned over the past few years is that the action is really not at the threshold of war. We had a lot of fixation with where's the, where's the threshold of war? It's all below the threshold of war now. It's really that gray zone. You talked about, you know, election interference and the like. And so that suggests that there is potentially a natural escalation ceiling. Right. And that may be what's helping to loosen the reins a little bit on our willingness to accept the risk of escalation. And the, just so I understand that, the escalation ceiling is an event that would count a violation of the UN Charter or an act of war in some sense? Is that the, is that the idea? So if you think about I mean, the, the argument I heard a lot was, well, we can't risk escalation because at the top of es the escalation ladder is nuclear war. I see. Right. So now if, you, if the dominant sort of thought is that, well, there's a natural ceiling on escalation. We're not going to get to the point where we're going to so have... What is that natural ceiling is what I'm asking? Oh, I don't think anyone has oh, agreed on what that is. Oh, I thought is. you were suggesting that all of this stuff was taking place, that it turns out one of the things we've learned in the last three, four, or five years, and this is different from the emphasis 15, 10 years ago, is that it's not about the threshold, it's not about above the war threshold, it's below the war threshold. That's yes. where almost all of the activity is taking place. That's the areas, almost all the areas where we're getting our tails kicked. Um, and that's the Russian election, for example, that is... Maybe the Sony hack, uh, that's a closer call. But a lot of the stuff, the OPM theft and the like. I thought you were suggesting that now that we're focused on the below war threshold, for lack of a better phrase, that there was a natural ceiling on escalation within this below the war context, which is the war line itself. Is that well, so, so the, the, I'm not sure it, that's right. I, I, under, I understand. So far, what we have seen is that cyber doesn't escalate and has not escalated into kinetic and we, we we that that i mean that's an empirical statement which i think is true that doesn't mean that doesn't that mean it won't that doesn't mean it I mean, won't so but, but what about things like stuxnet, stuxnet and sony had, had fine but it it it, it hasn't by kinetic it, it hasn't got, gotten into kinetic con it hasn't gotten oh, I see, into right, kinetic right, conflict. right correct right. it's right. had right it's had that's kinetic a, effects I mean, so just, kinetic but, effects but, yeah, but not but kinetic, but not kinetic but, you know right. what just so everybody understands just explain that a little bit you're talking about this hasn't led to to war between to war military between forces yes. that's between right between kinetic, kinetic forces, within right. within with right. traditional military forces that's right. right so you could so is that a is that a natural i think that when when amy starts talking about a quote natural threshold uh, a natural ceiling on this that's sort of, that's the image that comes to mind maybe i don't yeah. i don't want to put words into your mouth but is that the kind of thing that you meant yes no no no, I don't the, know whether that's, that's true, true or whether it will right. hold, but it appears over the past several years. Right. Experience suggests that that might be true. Correct. Which is, you know, which actually raises an interesting question, which is not explored particularly in this in, in this volume, but the idea that a um, uh, that you could actually make an agreement that cy that cyber should not escalate, come to some sort of consensus that cyber should not escalate into uh, kinetic conflict between opposing military forces. That could be an interesting agreement. Okay. Um, Hard to see how that would be enforced. But, uh, but still, uh, agreed, but it, it could be a norm right. of, of, of behavior. I, I, I don't I mean, know. You could say that it's a, it's a norm now. I mean, there's a behavioral regularity, right. as you say, of these conflicts not escalating over into the kinetic military force context. That's how norms develop sometimes. You know, behavioral patterns over time that may have any number of reasons that develop a life of their own, so to speak. So I keep thinking about, you know, how do we get to behavioral patterns that develop over time? And the closest analogy I can think of is U.S.-Soviet intelligence operations during the Cold War. There was no treaty, there was no regime, there was no formalized agreement, but there was a mutual understanding about what the rules of the road were for espionage, if we captured one of their spies, if they captured one of ours, and that just developed by experience over time. And I wonder whether we're seeing that evolution in the cyber 
cyber realm with respect to these kinds of below threshold activities. There, there, there is one other thing that you mentioned, which sort, sort of, we, as Amy pointed out, we, we've done a lot of work on the, you know, what's above the line, what's below, below the line of armed conflict, uh, sorry, of, of, of armed attack, uh, you know, war versus not war. And as you point out, the most interesting stuff is below the threshold. But one of the th I think that one of the key realizations over the past several years has been that a whole bunch of below the threshold operations, below threshold operations, cumulatively can have strategic impact. Right. And that's a big deal. Right. Uh, and, and that, I mean, that's, that's different. That's, that's different and wasn't really talked about very much 10 years ago, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that that, I, I think that, that that point is something that is underappreciated and nobody has a really good handle on. And again, one doesn't know because one doesn't know about our offensive operations, but it certainly seems by reading the New York Times that we're on the losing end of those operations. It seems it, that way. It, right. We we don't know what we we don't know what we're doing to the Russians. We don't, but we do have one U.S. government official after another over many years complaining about what's happening to us and implying that we're not doing enough and saying, if not implying, that we don't we have inadequate deterrence. All of those statements suggest to me that we're getting our clocks cleaned. I don't like. I certainly don't like what's happening to us in cyberspace. But I don't know that I would like what's happening to the Russians in cyberspace. I, I just don't know. Yeah. Okay. I don't have any information on that. Yeah. But it sure feels like we're getting our yes. clocks cleaned. The U.S. government is talking that way. That's yes. correct. And we're the only ones talking about it. Like That's that. something that I've written about recently. That I, you don't really talk about this in your essay, but I don't really understand why. The U.S. government posture is to publicly, openly, there may be, I guess, make some thoughts, talk about our enormous losses. And, you know, we issue these indictments that detail these losses and show how good our adversaries are at getting at us. And we, maybe it's because we live in a democracy, maybe it's because we have a very robust press, but, you know, every week it seems like there's a new government report coming out about something terrible happening either in the public, private sector. The cumulative message of which is we are defenseless. Am I wrong about that? I I confess I had the same thought, and I don't. I, I can only think that it's a part of a an attempt, maybe misguided, maybe not, uh, to 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 alert the public about how bad the situation is, and to convince them to take action. That's yeah, the only right. thing that I can think of. Right. So let me ask you. So about our offensive capabilities and what we're doing. I want to come back to that. So the English essay, the first, the essay by Chris English. Mm -hmm. uh, which opened the collection. It's really a great essay. I learned a ton from it. But the thing that was really, I mean, this was really the most robust statement I've seen from a government official or a former government official, the most extended statement I, I've seen about the need to live in adversary networks. He talks about um, ISR, ISR is his acronym for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. And he basically, one major theme of the essay is that for us to be able to defend our networks and to have offensive capabilities, both for offensive purposes and defensive purposes, we have to have absolute, complete coverage of living inside the adversary's network. That's the way I see this essay. And that's an extended reflection on why we need that and that this is the direction we need to move in and what the hurdles to doing that are. Now, when I read this, and I assume when our adversaries read someone of Chris Inglis' stature talking about that, that is not the kind of thing that's going to give our adversaries much comfort. I imagine it's the kind of thing that it seems to be an acknowledgement that we're going to be completely inside your networks. What is the impact of that? It seems to me I can see the benefits of talking about this because it's, it's one of the things that this a lot of the collection of these essays seems to be is about the U.S. government and related foreign policy analysts and, sorry, cyber policy analysts trying to work up the organizational strength for us to be more forward-leaning. Not all the essays, but a lot of them. Uh, and anyway, that, that essay just struck me as extraordinary for that reason. Well, okay, let, let, let me just uh, boil down, I think, Chris's argument in, 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 a, in a nutshell. Uh, if you have, uh, if you want to conduct a cyber attack today, you better have gotten your intelligence as uh, in order uh, and laid your access pass two years ago. Okay, 
Okay. And since you don't know what you're going to want to attack today, you have to do that two years two years ago. You will have to. We've done that everywhere. Everywhere. So because you just don't you just don't know where you're going. You don't know you don't know what's going to be important. So you have to be everywhere. Right. And by the way, to be clear, if I'm interpreting right, that means being inside the adversaries' networks. That means breaking into the adversaries' networks. That's right. In, in, in some way, breaking in, the, to ma maintaining your access. And that's where it starts, is with, it, it's with access. And that idea also seems necessary for the new forward-leaning defense. I think that's right. That's right. Uh, exactly. Defense forward posture. Ex exactly. And, and how the other guy reacts to that is, you know, they, they might not see that as exactly a friendly act. That's and, correct. I think it's an extraordinary essay. I agree with you, Jack. And I think, you know, Chris's argument is that intelligence is not just a support function. He right. calls it an essential predicate to mission success. Right. That right. is a major change in terms of the role of intelligence. And he talks about how um, ISR capabilities have to be ubiquitous. This is the everywhere. He also but says it has to be at once comprehensive and anticipatory. And right. real time. Right. So right. there's the temporal component there too, that we can't just access a network two years ago and then sit there. We're going to have to update in real time so that we can go. And, and in our workshop, I remember him vividly saying this, uh, and it really stuck with me, we have to go from a standing start to a sprint like that in no time at all. Um, and that is a dramatic transformation. Of course, it raises a really interesting question. How likely is it for these high-end capabilities to proliferate? On the one hand, you see all this press about we should worry about how easy it is uh, for even low sophistication cyber bad actors to attack the most sophisticated uh, targets because we're terrible at patching. On the other hand, if you read Chris's essay as the uh, sort of as he intends it, I think it's actually quite demanding to develop the exquisite intelligence Amazing. capabilities to be that successful at the high end. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised, I mean, it seems staggering to have the capabilities to be basically everywhere you want to be immediately, which is what he's basically saying. If you look at the Snowden documents, it said a lot of that. We were trying to do that. Yeah. Um, so two more questions. One is, I just wonder what that does. I, I think it's, it's a, an honest statement, and it's a, probably an accurate statement. But the question is, once that's become known as the U.S. position, where do we get the normative leverage to complain about people living in our networks? And where do we get, and, and you know, we're doing other things presumably. Um, and we don't hear a lot. The front pages of the news are about thing, bad things happening to the United States. We don't get a lot of the other side of the argument in the U.S. context. But a lot of the rest of the world sees this as confirmation of what the, the Snowden document suggested and what the U.S. is doing. And I'm just wondering how, how we can continue to have our cake and eat it too. If that's the right way to characterize it, maybe you want to disagree with that. I, I think it's exactly the right way to, to, to characterize it. And, and, but I'm no longer surprised when governments demonstrate hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy is a, there, there's a great essay in Foreign Affairs um, by, uh, I think it's Henry Farrell and Martha Finnamore right. uh, on the strategic value of hypocrisy. Uh, and so they point out that, that what their argument is is, is that Hypocrisy is a strategic is a strategic resource, yeah. and then you, you should be able to to do it. And you say no, no, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, and the reason is that governments have conflicting interests. I mean that's not a, that's not a surprise. And so the answer the the the, the answer which the U.S. Impl is implicitly saying you know giving to to this question is we're the good guys and you're not. So we should be able to live in your networks and you shouldn't be in ours. Now that's basically the argument that that that, that we're making. Um, now I'm an American. I happen to believe that, but I'm not sure that I can expect anybody else to believe that. That I mean, that, that. Well, I, could, I I prefer instead of hypocrisy the term effective flexibility in our thinking. <laughs> so of course I believe we should be in other people's networks, but they shouldn't be in ours. And I guess the question comes back to you, Jack: What does it mean to live in someone else's network? Yeah. There is a world of difference between conducting surveillance and intelligence gathering and stealing intellectual property that robs us blind. A world. It's not the same thing. Well, I agree. It's not the same thing. I completely agree. It's not the same thing. But. We, but the question is, our adversaries think it's not the same thing, too, on the other end. And so I don't understand. We, we're trying to develop a norm. For example, this is off the point a little bit of your essays, but trying to develop a norm, which is not working so far, to prevent theft of commercial uh, intellectual property and related trade secrets by another country for use to help their companies. Um, and the Chinese and the Russians and the like and say, 
why should we why should we abide by that norm when you're living in our networks for purposes that advance your foreign policy interests? So I agree, we're not doing to them what they're doing to us, and they're not doing to us what we're doing to them in some sense. But the question is what leverage we have to say in a convincing way to other countries what we do is okay and what you do isn't. But it certainly doesn't track international law. I mean, the normative argument is hard to make, but of course we've lived with these conflicting yeah. normative arguments in the nuclear yeah. world for a long time. The right. nuclear the non-proliferation treaty is the poster child for this. But the difference is it was pretty hard for third-party adversaries to get nuclear weapons, and we had means of keeping it under control. Here, we're, I think, much less successful at keeping our adversaries from getting these weapons because, frankly, they're not hard to develop. Is that fair? I, uh, it's certainly less hard than nuclear weapons, uh, so so that that part is, is, is certainly right. Um, I mean, we want we want the West, rest of the world to understand that we're the good guys and, and that they should and that they know that they're bad and so that they shouldn't be doing these. I mean, that's not the way to make foreign policy, right? For for us to assume that they know we're good, and they know they're bad. That's that that's not the way to go. And so you ask what leverage we have. We don't have very much, and we have the situation that we have now that you're rightly complaining about. Not complaining, just trying to understand. No, but I think you raise a really important question, which is where can we actually advocate norms that are universally attractive, right? right? So, because right now we're not in a, a norm-winning argument state of nature. And we've talked about that for a bit, about you know, could you have a norm that you develop where there will never be, or you'll, you'll decouple conventional and nuclear command and control systems, where we, everybody benefits if we do that because of the destabilizing uncertainties of cyber reconnaissance or even cyber attack that undermine nuclear command and control or norms about preservation of the financial system. There's critical infrastructure and then there's critical, critical infrastructure. Right. So I don't want to throw the norm baby out with the bathwater. I think there's... there are possible, but just here, take this norm. Yeah. We won't use our offensive cyber capabilities, exploitation, or attack to muck around and try to affect your political system, your authoritarian political system that we don't like. Uh, in exchange for you not mucking around in our political system. I, I've talked about this, I've proposed it, and because I don't, frankly don't see any way we're going to get relief. I'm not even sure what I propose is even feasible, but assuming it in the absence of something like that, it seems there's so many asymmetries that cut against us, I don't see how we're going to get relief from social media attacks, phishing attacks, and the like. And yet, I have never, ever heard a U.S. government official ever once talk about offensive cyber capabilities, I mean exploitation especially, but also attack, that we're willing to take off the table. It just doesn't seem to be part of the conversation. That's because we're the good guys. I don't want to be seen as implying that we're not the good guys, but I do think... You're I, not! I know, but I do... Um, no, I agree. But I do think that this is a real hurdle to analysis, including self-analysis of I, the United States. I, ab, ab, absolutely. Yeah. Ab, that's absolutely correct. I mean, that's why... That's why it's so hard to find plausible norms, because you have to find plausible norm, norms that are acceptable, that really do serve the interests of, of, of both sides. Right. And even a norm like um, um, you know, don't attack the banking system. First of all, you know, the banking system is something with porous borders. And second of all, you know, the banking system, if attacked, we have much more to lose from that. So there are asymmetric vulnerabilities there. And so, you know, uh, the other side may have relative gains, even if they lose. Well, from let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of something like that. It certainly China. China owes us. A, you know, we owe China a trillion dollars or something like that, right? It's certainly not in Chinese interest to, to have a Chinese attack collapse the American banking system. That's not in right. their interest. Yeah, right. uh, this is an example of, yeah. of what Joe and I would uh, describe as the entangle as entanglement. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that that that's a, that's that's in terms of a reciprocal norm between us and China, that's probably a reasonable one to, yeah. to, 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 to come to. So Amy's point about uh, separating nuclear command and control, uh, I mean, it is in our, it, it, it is in our interests in some of that. I would like, the world, a world in which nuclear and conventional command and control are separated is to me a much better world than one in which it is not. But you know, there are lots of people who are who merge them together, who will say, no, 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 that's a good thing because your fear of, going, of, of escalating a nuclear prevents you from attacking us conventionally. So they'll make that, that kind of argument. 
And of course, there's, then there's the money argument, but never mind that for the moment. So my last comment is on reading, in reading these essays, I was struck by what seems to me to be a paradox of the United States has these certainly extraordinary offensive capabilities in cyber, certainly more robust than any other country in the world, just in terms of budgets and capabilities and numbers and the like. Um, and yet, at the same time, we're really, really, really struggling to use these weapons in a way, or these capabilities, I should say, in a way that's effective. The, um, Ash Carter, when he left DOD, basically said, I wasn't really impressed with our offensive cyber capabilities. Now, I think he was talking about in the context of the war on terrorism, I'm not sure. Uh, but one gets the sense, you know, that we have, I, this really struck me when Obama in the same press conference said, we're the best at this at the same time. He was trying to deal with the fact that the Russians just interfered in our election and we couldn't do anything about it. So that paradox seemed to me to be on the surface uh, of this book. Do you, is, that, is that a fair statement? I think, it, yes. And I think, I think it comes back to the, the essay that, you know, with, with, with Max uh, and, and uh, that I wrote and also, and also Jay's. This is really a question of, of, of risk, risk acceptance. What's really proven in, in, in all of this is that we have been risk averse, right? And if you're risk averse, there are fewer things you're willing to do. Right. Well, and, there, and psychology would help us understand why right. we're risk averse, right? That's it's right. prospect theory. We have much more to lose, and so we're, you know. Um, right. But it's also right. true that if we're increasingly risk accepting, that bad things might happen. I mean, it, well, we that's might, right. We might have escalation and an increased likelihood of escalation. Well, that's right. And and so we'll and, and, and how and, and how you and how you manage it. The problem with if you if you want to escalate, you have to be willing to take whatever the other guy's going to give back to you after you escalate. Okay. And then you you have to go down to the you you, you have to go to, be willing to go to the mat. And then if you're not willing to go to the mat, then how far are you willing to go? And, and how you calibrate that, that's mighty tough. It's just not, a, not just a cyber problem, of right. course. So I, one of the things that I wish we had spent more time in the book doing, which I think you get right. when you read the whole book, is, is doing those so what? What are the recommendations that we right. would suggest uh, overall? And I keep coming back to how much we don't know about what we don't know and the importance of wargaming. I, I am convinced now, if I were to do the conference today, I would include a big uh, section on how we can design cyber war games in a socially scientific way to accumulate knowledge about these escalation dynamics. And I, I'm reminded of um, Proud Profit in 1983. I'm a bit obsessed with Proud Profit, right? This war game that used uh, the, real, the real Secretary of Defense, real Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It was real uh, you know, US military plans to test our assumptions about how nuclear escalation dynamics would work. And it turns out our assumptions were dead wrong. Right, so it was escalate to de-escalate. If we use small nuclear strikes against the Soviet Union, uh, they will back down. And of course, Americans played the Soviets, but the findings were that in fact, the Soviets looked at it as an attack on the homeland, a question of honor, and they retaliated and 500 million people died. Uh, NATO was no more, and it was a shock to the um, uh, military community. Now, this was highly classified until a few years ago, but the value of wargaming these kinds of scenarios is that they unmask uh, flawed assumptions. I don't even think we're at the point now where we know enough about what the assumptions are, but we need to develop, I think, a research program to actually test them explicitly, systematically through wargaming. That's a great idea, and it sounds like a great next project for you two. More homework for us. Great. Amy and Herb, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you.